if I sound groggy, it's because I just felt, woke up after taking a nap with my kids. Okay, guys, um, happy Hanukkah to all of you. Um, it's really amazing to be experiencing this wonderful holiday with you guys. And I thought to do something a little bit different tonight than I have done in previous years. We spoke last week about a little bit about the spiritual side of Hanukkah, the idea of transcendence and the spiritual. I want to talk about another aspect of Hanukkah tonight, and that's the symbolism of the actual flame of the menorah. We talked last week about the number eight and the oil and the oil burning, but what's the symbolism of the actual lighting of the menorah? And we're going to go into a tangent tonight which is really very different than you might have expected. We're going to actually talk about drugs and Judaism. So anyone interested in learning about drugs and Judaism? What is the Jewish approach to drugs? What do we feel about drugs? What's, are they good or bad, in favor, yay, nay? Right? Let's talk about drugs a little bit. Uh, but let's start by talking about Hanukkah. Okay, what does Hanukkah mean? What does the word Hanukkah mean? Does anyone know? The word Hanukkah actually means an inauguration ceremony. When you do something new for the first time, there's something called a Hanukkah habayas. When you build a new house and you make a ceremony, a Hanukkah habayas means like a house, a housewarming. It means a house inauguration. And when the temple was built, Initially, there was something called a Hanukkah Hamizbeach, which was the inauguration, the initial ceremony of using the altar in the temple. And essentially, the rekindling of the menorah in the temple after the Greeks defiled the temple was called a Hanukkah uh, temple. It was a re-inauguration of the temple. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the symbolism here. Why? was the menorah itself chosen by God to be the symbol of that inauguration ceremony for all of time? Why was it specifically the menorah that represented the the miracle could have happened another place? It could be they found oil, but maybe they didn't find something else they needed for the temple, and that would have been the symbol. Why was the menorah chosen by God to be the symbol of the inauguration ceremony of the temple? So what do you think the, the symbolism is of the lighting of the menorah? What do you think the meaning is? There's a mitzvah in the temple to light the menorah every single day, every day, and it burned throughout the entire night. That was the mitzvah in the, in the temple, and it was lit by the kohanim, the priests, Kohen Gadol, would light the, temp, the menorah every single day. And in fact, it, the Talmud traces it back to a very interesting story. And we're going to talk about just a, a story in the Torah and then and then use that as a branching off point to get to a very, very deep, profound idea about life, which I believe is one of the most life-changing fundamental ideas from Jewish mysticism that literally will change your life if you understand it properly. So the Torah says that when the temp, when the the, the uh, Mishkan, which was a tabernacle, it was a temple that was built by the Jews in the desert, which was basically a portable temple, which eventually was built in Jerusalem as a permanent temple. When the temple was built, all the tribes came and they brought what are called the inaugurational s sacrifices. They brought gift offerings to the temple 
to be the first things that are brought on the altar and gifts that were used in building of the temple. And this was called the Hanukkah HaMishkan, the inauguration of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, of the sanctuary. And one tribe was not included in these bringing these initial offerings, and that was Aaron, the tribe of the Kohanim, and the tribe of Levi. And he was concerned that maybe he, he, he missed out on this incredible opportunity. He felt very bad about it. And the Talmud tells us that God said to him, don't worry, Aaron, you shouldn't feel bad. Because in the future, your ancestors are going to light the menorah in the temple every single day. That's one explanation. And the problem with that is as follows. Let's think about it for a second. Let's think about it for a second. Um, imagine the following point. You just opened your first business. And you're like really excited that you opened up your business. And you do an inauguration ceremony, ribbon-cutting ceremony. You invite the mayor of the town, and there's a band playing, and all your relatives come, and it's like a huge celebration, right? Think about that for a second, the inauguration ceremony. And then your Uncle Louie shows up. Uncle Ralph, sorry. Uncle Ralph shows up after the ceremony was finished. And he's like, Andrew, you didn't invite me to the ceremony. I missed it. And you say to him, Ralph, Uncle Ralph, don't worry about it. You can do the dishes in the kitchen all week. W why is that not parallel? What is Ralph upset about? What was Aaron upset about? What did he feel like he missed out on? Remember the story? The initial offerings that were brought, the initial gifts brought, the ribbon ceremony ceremony and God says don't worry you get to light the menorah every single day why is that not parallel what was Aaron upset about what was Uncle Ralph upset about that they missed what Andrew Well, he's going to do a mitzvah lighting the menorah, but why are those not parallel? What mitzvah was – what was he disappointed in having missed? What's Uncle Ralph disappointed in having missed? Uh, well, Uncle Ralph didn't ha wasn't going to bring anything. He was just going to be there at the ribbon-cutting ceremony. And so you say to him, don't worry, Ralph. You can do the dishes all week. Why is that not why should that not make Ralph feel much better? What's he? What does he want? What did he want to be there for? Apples to oranges. What did he want? Right. He wanted to be part of the initial ceremony. Why is the initial ceremony so special? Because it's it's the first time. The first time is exciting. There's a passion. There's an inspiration. There's an excitement. That's what's so special about the first time. When you do something new, it's really special. And he wanted to be part of that initial excitement. And God says, don't worry, you get to light the menorah in the temple. 
Huh? It's like you get to switch on the light switches and turn on the electricity every week, every day in the store, in the restaurant. It's not exciting. So what is God telling Aaron is the message of the menorah. What's the symbolism of the menorah? We're going to come back to that question. Okay? So now let's turn our attention to the screen. And this this presentation is called Getting High. The Torah View of Recreational Drugs. I oftentimes share this presentation on on uh, April 20th. Wait, sorry, sorry. May the, yeah, April 20th, which is in addition to being uh, 420 is also Hitler's birthday, which I, I'm assuming is coincidental. But okay. So <laughs> Jews and drugs go way back. Actually, uh, says Richard Nixon in the 1960s. You know, it's a funny thing. Every one of the bastards that are out for legalizing marijuana is Jewish. What's the matter with the Jews? What's with Jews and drugs? Anyone notice that Jews are often at the forefront of counterculture, whether it's drugs or anything else? I suppose because most of them are psychiatrists, says Richard Nixon. That's funny. Anyway. Um, but the truth is, is there any, is there, are there any sources for the use of marijuana in, in Taurus literature? Are drugs legal according to Jewish law? So one interesting thing to point out that some, some, uh, anthropologists and linguists believe it says in the Torah that we should take certain spices and bring them is incense in the temple that was part of the temple service every day, twice a day actually. And it says one of them was called Kane Bosim, which is a fragrant reed or a fragrant branch. And some point, point out that Kane Bosim is related to the Hebrew word cannabis. Right? In fact, the word cannabis comes from the Hebrew word canvas. Canvas is a Hebrew word. It appears in the Talmud. The establishing rimless was in the Semitic canvas, and the Scythian cannabis led me to suppose that the Scythian word was of Semitic origin. These entomological discussions run parallel to arguments drawn from history. The Semites could also have spread the word during their migrations through Asian Minor. So says anthropologist Sarah Benatova that it could be that the word cannabis is actually related to the Hebrew word canvas, which is related to the English word canvas. Canvas comes from hemp. Hemp comes from the plant of the, uh, from the marijuana plant, right? Cannabis plant. Okay, but well, that's just interesting. Okay, whether it's uh, historically correct or not, don't know, but this is interesting. It says uh, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, that one should ideally make a wick for the Sabbath Shabbos candles, from that which the light comes from the wick itself, for example, flax, flax, cotton, or canvas. So if you light up some cannabis for your Shabbos candles, you're going to have a very lit, lit up Shabbos. Okay, this is all just interesting. And and in fact, the Elia Rabba, one of the great commentaries, says that canvas is actually the ideal way to light your Shabbos candles. So you will have a very high Shabbos if you do that. Okay, but let's let's move along. Let's move on. So this is interesting. 
the every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value. So the word smoke in Hebrew is the word ashan. It's actually a, a very, very deep Kabbalistic concept that comes from the word ashan, that ashan stands for olam shana nefesh, which is the three dimensions of life, which is world, meaning space, shana, time, and nefesh is soul. And there's a confluence, there's a congruence between space, time, and soul in every action in life. It's actually quite fascinating. Actually, I had I had an idea about this a few years ago that Hanukkah actually very much ties into this because in in space, the holiest place in the world. What's the holiest place according to the Torah? Anyone know the holiest place in Judaism, Joseph? Israel, but in Israel, what's the holiest place in Israel? Not just the wall, actually. The wall is the outside of the temple. So the inside of the temple is even holier. We can't go there anymore. It's the right, it's the mosque now. But do you know what the holiest spot of the temple was? It was a place called the Kodesh HaKadashim. The uh the Holy of Holies. And it, it was a certain spot that, that the high priest only went into once a year on Yom Kippur. And it's just interesting to note that, that the holiest Jew is the high priest. The holiest day of the year is? What's the holiest day in time? On the Jewish calendar, anyone? Shabbat, that's actually arguable, arguably Shabbat, or others might argue Yom Kippur. All right, it's actually arguable. It's debatable whether it's Shabbat or Yom Kippur, but according to this idea, it's Yom Kippur. So on Yom Kippur, the holiest soul goes into the holiest place on the holiest day, and you have a con the congruence of space, time, and soul coming together, the three holies. And in fact, the Greeks, when when they were trying to defile the oil of the temple, why did they care about defiling the oil of the temple? What they really were trying to do was to get in to mess up the sanctity of the high priest and the holy of holies. So Ashan, the word Ashan smoke is numerical value, ayin is 70, shin is 300, nun is 50, add them up, you get 420. Smoke. Coincidence? I don't think so. But anyway, let's get into the real purpose of today's conversation. By the way, just to, as an aside, according to Jewish law, it is not so simple to smoke weed or to get high uh, for numerous reasons. It could be that this might be cultural, perhaps as it becomes legal, uh, rabbis might change some of their perspectives, but the simple understanding is that it's not a good thing because it affects your mind, your inability to focus on reality. And our job is to learn to connect to God in the here and now, not in a uh, quasi-focused state. It also increases uh, physical desires and takes a person out of their ability to do mitzvahs. And so according to Jewish law, it's not so simple to smoke weed or to do other drugs. But um, but again, ask your local Orthodox rabbi. 
Yes. Only one day a year that you're allowed to get drunk, and that's on Purim. Purim, there's a mitzvah to get drunk, but on Shabbos you're not allowed to get drunk. You're allowed to get uh, have a have a lachayim, right? A lachayim is uh, we, the whole idea of the Hasidic movement is to uplift the physical, and that includes food and different experiences, but not to the point of intoxic of intoxication, according to most opinions. Uh, yeah, all right, so. Um, so what, what are reasons that one might choose to do recreational drugs? Can you guys throw out some, some reasons that people do drugs? Cause it's fun. Good. One reason is fun, right? For the party experience, right? What else? What are additional reasons that people do drugs? Oh, so to escape, to escape either pain or lack of meaning, right, or depression or insecurity, to party, have fun. Anything else? For pain, right, again, to escape pain, to medicate. What else? Any other reasons? Perhaps if a person has anxiety, it can help them to relax. It could also give you pleasure at the end of a day if you want to just unwind. Very relaxing. Right? And then there's a fourth reason. Now, for a spiritual experience. Right? There, there are people that do both marijuana as well as psychedelic drugs for spiritual experience. There are many cultures that utilized drugs as part of their spiritual experience. And that's really the part that we're going to focus on tonight is the spiritual side of drugs. Okay, Because if it's medically necessary, so it could be it's a mitzvah, right? If you need it to relax, to deal with anxiety or depression, it could be – or pain. It could be it's medically necessary. Again, I don't believe my personal belief about medication when it comes to all psychotropic medications or all um, uh, psychotic medica- you know, psychological for medications or psychological purposes, you know, anxiety, depression, etc., is they could be very, very necessary and very helpful, but they shouldn't take the place of therapy. They should not take the place of actually working on your problems. Sometimes they're needed. And sometimes they can actually enhance therapy, and a lot, oftentimes uh, successful therapy requires both medication and therapy, but it shouldn't take the place of actually working on yourself, right? We should always seek to try to actually solve the root of the problem, not just medicate, not just cover up the problem. So we do – we you know, they're both nece- uh, both helpful. The idea of partying and fun is arguable, whether that's a Jewish value to just party and fun when it's not Shabbos. When it's not for a mitzvah, just partying. There's no word for fun in Hebrew. No such thing as just fun in, in biblical Hebrew. It's not a Jewish concept. The idea of fun is, you know, a definition of fun? Meaningless pleasure. 
definition of fun. Meaningless pleasure. Judaism believes all pleasure should be part of a meaningful experience. Then it actually becomes something purposeful in your life. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. And the idea of escaping pain, escaping your your problems is really not a good idea. Not recommended to escape your problems. Highly recommended to deal with your problems. Okay, but so the idea behind this class was that many years ago, I stumbled upon a copy of National Geographic. National Geographic had an article, had a cover feature um, called Weed in, uh, 19, in 2015. And I decided to read the magazine, and I found it was very interesting. And a large part of the magazine was an interview with an Israeli, of course, professor who is one of the leading uh, researchers in marijuana. His name is Dr. Rafal Meshulam, born in Bulgaria. He's a professor of biochemistry at Hebrew University. And he's the father of cannabis research for over 60 years. And he was actually responsible for isolating the active ingredient of THC and its psychoactive component, tetrahydrocannabinol, as well as the natural human analog in the brain, which is the receptor for uh, THC, or it's a natural THC that's produced by the body, which he entitled Anandamide. Anandamide. And in the article, I was quite surprised to find that he named it Anandamide after the Sanskrit word Ananda, which means supreme joy. Anyone bothered by that? Why? Excellent. And that was one of the things that bothered me, but something else bothered me about his choice of words for joy. This is a Jewish professor in Israel. Why did he have to choose a Sanskrit word for joy? Why couldn't he have named it a Jewish word for joy? And the National Geographic was also bothered by it, and they asked him, why didn't you name it after a Hebrew word for joy? And says the professor, in Hebrew, there are not so many words for happiness. Jews don't like being happy. And that made me very unhappy when I saw that, because it's wrong. And I wrote a letter to the editor of National Geographic. They never printed it, but it led to me writing an article for H.com on marijuana and Jewish joy. And that's really the basis for this class that I'm sharing with you today. So what does the Torah say about joy? So the truth is, is that the professor is quite wrong. In fact, it is pointed out by many biblical, many uh, Talmudic sources that not only does Judaism really value joy, it's the for, it's the basic, the basis of Judaism, but there are over 10 different words in Hebrew for happiness. And you have mo- many of them here on the screen. Simcha, Sason, Rina, Gila, Chedba, Ditsa, Tahala, Osha, Ora. These are all different words for joy. And it's pointed out 
by many sources that you can learn a lot about a culture by their use of language. Do you know that the Bedouins in, is, in, in the Middle East and in Israel have over 10 different words for sand? Soft sand, hard sand, light sand, dark sand, right? They live in the desert. They're, they're connoisseurs of sand. You know that the Inuits, the Eskimos living in Alaska and in, and in, the, in the Arctic have over 10 different words for snow. Because they're experts in snow. They know all about snow. They live in snow. Well, based on that, so you could see, you could say that the Torah and Judaism is the number one value in Judaism is joy. And based on that, we have 10 different words for joy. So let's, let's see a little few more sources about joy and Judaism. So it says in the Torah, many people are not aware of this. You might think that bad things happen to Jewish people because we don't keep the mitzvahs, because we worship idols, because we don't keep kosher or Shabbos. But the Torah says very clearly that all these bad things that will happen to you in the future because you didn't serve God with joy. The number one Jewish value, serving Hashem with joy. It's a prerequisite for all service of God. Serve God with gladness, come before Him with joyful song. You cannot, it says in Psalms, you cannot perform mitzvahs without joy. The great Arizal, the uh, the master Kabbalist, the founder of our main Kabbalistic system that we have today, who lived several hundred years ago in northern Israel and Sfat, said that all of his spiritual consciousness came about through doing mitzvahs with joy. The divine presence, says the Talmud, only rests upon someone in a state of joy. Prophecy, a prerequisite for prophecy, was often music. The prophets would listen to music or play music in order to get themselves into an ecstatic, joyful state in order to receive the divine presence. Says Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, great Hasidic master, it is a great mitzvah to, to be basimcha tamid, to always be in a state of joy. And the most popular class in Harvard history was a class known as Happiness 101, taught by an Israeli professor, Dr. Tal Ben-Shachar, who recently moved back to Israel. The most popular class in Harvard history was about happiness from a positive psychologist. And he made a whole video film about the roots of positive psychology which actually come from Judaism. Many of the ideas discovered by modern psychologists had actually been present for thousands of years in traditional Jewish sources. Unbelievable. So let's go a little bit further. What is the word, what, what is the, 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 the normative word for joy in Hebrew? Does anyone know? The word that's used most common in Hebrew to, to mean joy or happiness? Simcha, excellent. And simcha actually, one amazing thing is that the letters of the word simcha are the same Hebrew letters as the word machshava, which means thought. That already from ancient sources we see that joy has to do not with what you have, but about what you think. You know what the word happiness in English means? It comes from the Latin word hap. What is the word hap? 
men. It actually comes, shares the root, right? Happening, happenstance. It means luck. The word happiness in English means luck. If you get lucky to have the right stuff, the right house, the right car, the right bank account, the right spouse, the right job, then you'll be happy. But Torah tells us it has nothing to do with what you have. It has everything to do with what you think about what you have. Simcha has the same letters as the word machshava, thought. But the word simcha is also related to the word semach, which means to grow. True joy, as Andrew pointed out, is not about highs. It's about growth. Think about the most joyful experiences in life. Weddings, having kids, marrying off your kids, accomplishments, fulfilling your purpose, learning, growing. They all have to do with literally working hard towards an accomplishment, towards a goal. Think about the feelings of fun that we have in life. What are those often associated with? Like we mentioned a few minutes ago, meaningless experiences that are cheap and easy. Watching a movie, going to a, a entertainment, going to a party. They are might be fun, but that's not an experience of joy. What do you think the experience a doctor in the emergency room is feeling when he's saving someone's life? What do you think that might feel like, Melly? Yeah, he or she, sorry. Right, probably in the process it's very stressful, but when they finish a surgery, fulfillment, bliss, exhilaration, ecstasy, meaning, passion, purpose, joy, but not fun. No one would say that was really fun saving that guy's life. Fun is an experience of pleasure that's disconnected from purpose. It's something that's a game. The whole idea of a game is that it's just a game. It's fun. There's no goal. There's no end result. It's just fun. But real-life experiences that have goals, real goals, are not fun. They're pleasurable. They're meaningful. They bring you true joy. So the true pleasure is the reward is the reward that comes from the work, as opposed to fun, which is the reward without the work, without the commitment. Think for a second about hooking up culture, right? Tinder culture. What's the pleasure of hooking up with someone as opposed to having a relationship with someone? There might, there, there might be a little bit of joy in the experience of actually trying to 
get somebody to like you, the chase, the pleasure of the chase, right? There is some, some effort that's invested in that area, but the actual experience is cheap, free, and easy. It's the pleasure without the work, without the commitment, and therefore it doesn't lead to any long-term lasting pleasure. And that's where addictions come in. It's a place. Because if a person is constantly running after the high, so that leaves you very susceptible to becoming addicted to the high. Right? The high of the experience, whatever it is, whether it's the drug of endorphins released from entertainment or sexual encounters or food. If you run after that high and get used to that high, then it becomes something that you can become dependent on. So the goal of life is growth, which leads to long-term fulfillment and long-lasting joy. The goal of life is not the high. The goal of life is the growth. So the surgeon might need some downtime at the end of the day to relax a little, take his mind off. But ultimately, the goal of relaxation is to get back to doing your purpose. Whereas many people in our culture, what's the two common, most popular drugs of choice in the Western world? Caffeine and alcohol. Oh, sugar, sugar, arguably a drug as well. Caffeine and alcohol. Caffeine to get you through a nine-to-five job you hate and alcohol to numb you and help you forget about it at night or on the weekends. Right? But the goal of Judaism says it's not about drinking to numb ourselves or relaxing to, to numb ourselves. The goal is to get through the job so I can get to that Netflix show, so I can get to that alcoholic beverage of choice. The goal is that I sometimes need to relax to get back to work because that's really where I want to put my energy in life is doing something meaningful, using my talents and my energy to change the world. Right? My job might not be that. My job might just be a job, but that then my job is there to full, to give me the sustenance in order to do what I what is meaningful in my life, like raise my family or volunteer or use my talents in other ways. Your job doesn't have to be your purpose, but your job has to fuel your purpose. It's not that your job should be fueling your addiction or your pleasure. It's like on the contrary, your life should be leading to pleasure. Because if you live a life of meaning, then you will truly be ple- have pleasure all the time, long-lasting pleasure. So once a person experiences the pleasure of a true love, la- long-lasting relationship, and we're going to talk about love next week, hopefully, so then there's very little interest in empty hookup experiences. And once a person experiences true spirituality, which comes from really working on yourself and developing a real relationship with God, then you no longer really have a need for quick high experiences. So getting high, the problem with getting high is what comes after every high? Depression. Every high leads to a low. 
It's just natural. And then your baseline, which used to be here, suddenly feels like a low. Right? Your baseline, if you get used to getting up here to a high, so your baseline begins to feel like a low. And then that leads to addiction because I need to get this to be my baseline because this no longer feels good anymore. So what's very interesting, you know, I've had, I've had a lot of, um, what's very interesting is that the, what's really at the root of people seeking out spiritual experiences through alcohol or drugs is that it's really coming from a deep spiritual desire. The, Carl Jung, the father of, in many ways, of modern uh, psychoanalysis, is the number one student of Sigmund Freud. In the 1930s, he formulated a theory about addiction, and he was embarrassed to publish it because he thought people would make fun of him. But his theory was later verified by Alcoholics Anonymous, which was that the cure for addiction is spirituality. And he actually wrote that that the the Latin word for alcohol is spirits because the alcohol seeks to fill a desire for spirituality. Drugs and alcohol seek to numb to fill that emptiness that a person feels inside, that void, that that anxiety, that lack of meaning and purpose which only can truly be filled with meaning and purpose. I think we spoke about before, if you ever go to the fridge when you're hungry and you open up the fridge, you ever have this experience and you don't see anything there and you close the fridge, you come back a few minutes later and open the fridge again as if something would magically change? The answer is because when we go to the fridge, how often are we looking for food and how often are we actually looking for meaning? How often do we go to the fridge because our stomachs are empty? And how often do we go because our hearts are empty? Because we feel empty. Because we feel lack of stimulation. Because we feel bored. Because we feel a, a lack of purpose. More often than not, we seek external stimuli such as entertainment, relationships, food, and drugs to fill a lack inside ourselves. But the true way to solve that problem is to truly fill ourselves with connection, meaningful connections, meaningful purpose, meaningful experiences. So according to Kabbalah, the, the, and this is the message that literally changed my life, every experience in life has three phases. Every experience in life starts with a free gift, love at first sight. Beginner's luck, an, an experience of something that is a natural high, going on a trip to Israel, birthright, wow, I'm inspired. It's called the phase of inspiration. And what happens inevitably after a couple of hours, days, weeks? What happens to that inspiration? It disappears. Anyone have that experience where you feel totally into something and then like it just you lose that spark, that love at first sight. So Kabbalah teaches us that, that the reason for that is because the inspiration was a free gift and free gifts don't last. The goal of a free gift of inspiration is to inspire you to now do the work, to enter the second phase, which is the phase of integration. That's taking the experience and now 
owning it by earning it, putting in the effort to make it yours. And then that after hard years of hard work comes the third phase, which is the inspiration comes back, but now you've owned it. Now you've earned it and now it's part of you. It doesn't, it stays forever. So life is a process of not highs and lows. It's a process of up, climbing up the steps. You have a natural inspiration. You have to go further, climb, climb higher and keep going. Inspiration is the mo- motivation to keep us going. But ultimately, we have to do the work if we want to keep that inspiration. That's our issue with drugs, is that drugs are free. Easy come, easy go. But if you want it to last, you have to earn it. You have to work for it. So the message of the menorah, let's go back to the initial question. Aaron was given a a commandment to light the menorah in the temple, but he didn't want to light the menorah. He wanted to be part of that initial inspiration, that initial phase of inspiration. So God tells Aaron, your job is even greater than the initial inspiration because you know what your job is? To light the flame of inspiration every single day. Those free initial moments of inspiration, the love at first sight, the beginner's luck, Those are free. They're amazing. They're free. They don't last. What is even greater than that is putting it into action every day of your life to choose actions, to hold on to the inspiration. Inspiration is like a soul. If you want a soul to exist in this world, you have to put it into a body. And that's the mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are actions, actions of inspiration that you generate. It doesn't come from a free gift. It's something you have to generate that inspiration on a daily basis. It's the consistency of choosing to do good deeds that bring about the inspiration. That's the message of Hanukkah. If you want to get out of depression, if you want to have a meaningful life, bring light into the world. Light up another person's life. That's the message of Hanukkah. Do acts that inspire the world. Don't wait for the free moments of inspiration. Take charge of your inspiration. Tell yourself, I'm going to every day do a meaningful act. I'm going to take one minute a day to say a prayer, one minute a day to do an act of kindness for another person, one minute a day to think and contemplate my life and try to work on self-improvement. That's the key to long-lasting joy. And that is yours, and it will be yours forever. Thank you, guys for joining me i hope that was uh beneficial and we'll continue to talk about this theme next week hopefully when we talk about love